What's going on, everybody? It's Joe Martucci at the Press of Atlantic City. It is September. It is local summer's time. And as you know, it's plenty of time to get on the water while the air is still warm and the water is still warm. And for this episode, I think who we have on is fantastic to talk about all this. This is Fred Akers. He's the administrator of the Great Egg Harbor Watershed Association. All those towns along the Great Egg Harbor Watershed come together to protect the ecological diversity of the area. And he is on to talk about that. We're also going to talk about his thoughts on the back base study that came out in August and his thoughts on what the plans, at least the proposed plans will be. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Fred. We're going to talk about his tomatoes too. So without further ado, here we go. Watershed Fred. All right, let's get this going. We are here with the man himself, as he likes to call himself, and I actually like it too, Watershed Fred, Fred Akers. Fred, how's it going today on this uh, very warm, even hot summer afternoon? We're recording this in August, and the heat is on. Yeah, it's going good. The, the heat is on, and we've had you know some good rainfall. Okay, cool. More important question for you, Fred. How are the tomatoes doing? Uh Banner year, bumper crop. They they got cooked just a little in one of the heat waves, but they're taller, bigger plants, and the harvest is just overwhelming. It is possible that Fred is the tomato king of Atlanta County. He came over one day and dropped off tomatoes, and I have seen, I saw like the whole rainbow spectrum of tomatoes that he had, all shapes and sizes. I wanted to show you my tomato that I picked from the garden. How, how do you like this one? That's nice. It looks good. What, what, what kind is it? What kind uh, is it? Uh, geez, I don't know. I would say that this would be a small beef steak. Is that correct? It's hard to know. We, we grow mostly open pollinated heirloom tomatoes. I so. don't know. You know what happened? I bought the plant at Home Depot, Fred. I know that was probably really bad of me to do, but it was just a Home no, Depot. No, 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 no. It's probably a hybrid. Maybe one of the boys or the girls. Okay. Big boy. Well, it tastes good. It tastes good. It looks good. So, you know, those checked off two big boxes for me. But well, good for you for growing it. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. We always grow it. Actually, you know, when I was growing up, um, my Nona, my, both my Nona and my Tatone, uh, Italian for grandparents, they used to have a pretty sizable garden, at least for Union County standards. Let's just talk about, besides the tomatoes, you, because I think you're really just – a fascinating person to talk to because you're so involved here in South Jersey. And on a personal note, I feel like a lot of what you do, you know, is is like unsung work and it's very important. Maybe not get all the credit that you do deserve. So, Fred, I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you. And, you know, just in two or three minutes, just tell me about yourself, you know, growing up. How did you get to be at this point um, in your career? Okay. I grew up in Brigantine. I went to Atlantic City High School, and I was in the Boy Scouts and spent a lot of time growing up uh, at the shore, in the back bays, boating, fishing, uh, canoeing, going inland to the Pinelands. I've been canoeing on the Great Egg Harbor River off and on for almost my entire life, from maybe 14 years on. And over time, I I went to... uh, college at Drexel and I got a a business BS in in business administration and I went 
on to work for big companies like Procter Silex and Johnson and Johnson and the glass company and Miller Brewing. So I was chasing those corporate jobs. <clears throat> and then I kind of reached the point where I said, you know, this, I don't think this is the, the way I want to go. Uh, so I moved back to New Jersey and I said, I'm going to be here to so have a sense of place. And over time, an opportunity came up to get involved with the management of the Great Egg Harbor Watershed Association. And that opportunity came with the federal designation of 129 miles of uh, Wild and Scenic River. And the uh, Great Egg Harbor Watershed Association was designated as the host. It was the first river in the United States to be locally managed because there's no federal lands. And there was a need for a staff person to like to uh, start that and, and build it and, and make it into something. And that's what I did. I started that around 2000. Got it. And you kind of are leading me into, you know, my next question about the watershed here. You know, is what's the importance of the watershed actually being locally managed as opposed to something that would be under federal control? Okay. Um, what the importance of that is, is it's a way to have federal federally supported management at the local level so in the case of the great egg there was a requirement that local municipalities had to buy in so there are 12 towns that have agreed to participate well first they agreed to a local management local river management plans which was about protective zoning and then the second thing they agreed to was to uh appoint people to serve on a council of the 12 towns and the watershed association forever. So it's a way, and another big component is the river is managed through cooperative agreements. So federal funding comes to local jurisdictions uh, under this program. So it's a way for congressional designation to kind of um, bring home the bacon in a sense to have federal funding uh, pay for local river management. Got it. Okay. And from the research that I did, it looks like the Great Harbor River is classified as a quote, recreational and scenic river and not a wild river. So just confirm that for me, if that's true. And that is true. Does that matter for the people who use the waterways? Okay. That's a, that's a great question. So, to be designated a wild and scenic river, there was a study that was required. And the study that had a number of uh, metrics that were involved. One was whether the river was wild, scenic, or recreational. Uh, and it could have been all of those or some of those. And that depended mostly on the accessibility. So areas that, like we didn't have any remote wilderness in our watershed, but we did have some scenic areas, which are down in the, the tidal area mostly. And then recreation was uh, the next one. And then there, were, there was a scoring, a whole scoring process for values. And, and so they, they're called outstanding resource values. And there were a number of those that qualified the great egg to be designated, one of which was outstanding recreational resource values. 
And there were also cultural values and um, the scenic values and wildlife values that were all um, included as metrics in the designation. Got it. So it's a recreational river and it's a scenic river, but it's not a wild river. So it made two to three designations. So like it's New Jersey. We're like the densely most populated state in the country. Are there any wild rivers in New Jersey? Um, it, I'm pretty, I get, I can be pretty geeky with these, with this stuff. <laughs> so there, there's um, some river segments on the Delaware Bay that were identified in something called the Nash, Nationwide Rivers Inventory that was part of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. And because there's no access to some of those, they were they had a wild designation. I figured if it was going to be somewhere, it was going to be in South Jersey. I don't think anywhere north of like 195 was going to be a wild river in here. Um, so, you know, what is the budget like each year for you guys? Like, let's talk dollars and cents. Like, how much money do you have to, you know, you know, utilize for the watershed? And how do you acquire those funds as well? Well, in the beginning, uh, you know, back in the early 2000s, there, there was not much funding uh, in terms of appropriations. So let's say we were uh, lucky to be working with $100,000 a year to, to give you kind of a, a, a beginning level. Mm -hmm. And that was enough for, you know, the Great Egg Harbor, which is a nonprofit. And the, the program started here in New Jersey, but now it, it's got... It has 16 rivers in nine states. They're on the East Coast. And as the program grew and new rivers were added, when we got up to about five, there was the consensus among, you know, people that were involved that we needed to go to Congress and ask for more funding. So I kind of led the charge on that for, for the last 15 or 16 years. And Congress has been very responsive in the last five years. So we're up to uh, an appropriation now that's, that's passed through to our cooperative agreement of 160000 Got it. Okay. And, you know, you're saying Congress. Are you talking about representatives here in South Jersey that are helping you, you know, work with this? Is this like, um, you know, um, Frank Mobiondo and Jeff Andrew helping you, or is this actually you going to Washington yourself and saying, hey, we're looking for money for this? Um, in the beginning, Bill Hughes was the congressman that actually crafted this local management program. It was okay. kind of his idea, and he was able to get the Great Egg and the Morris River designated. The Morris River went in 93. <clears throat> um, and Frank Lobiondo was in the early days, he was, uh, he sponsored what we developed as a dear colleague letter. So Frank would sponsor a letter that he would send to other members of Congress to uh, appropriations to ask for increased funding for us. But as the number of rivers grew, it opened the field to have multiple uh, Congress people from multiple states be involved. And uh, in the early days on the Senate side, Senator Ten Kennedy from Massachusetts was a big supporter of our program, which is now called the Partnership Wild and Scenic Rivers Program. Got it. Okay. 
Let's talk about some of the outreach that you do. One of the outreach events I think is great is what you do with the uh, seventh graders at Fernwood Avenue Middle School in EHT. I think you've done that since 2005, um, where you get to go out in the Duke of Fluke and, and you teach, you know, seventh graders about marine education. So how cool is that for you to be a part of that event each year? Um, and how did that start? Uh, yeah, that's like the, the best education event ever. Uh, and it started with the teachers in the Egg Harbor Township schools. Uh, Jim Toms is, well, Dave Crawford kind of started it and Jim Toms came in and took it over. And he actually was the one that got together with the captain of the Duke of Fluke uh, and determined that they could pull a trawl net with that boat and uh, get samples of, you know, marine creatures from the bay and bring them up onto the boat. And the teacher, Jim Toms, would teach to that program. So he would teach his students about the river and the bay and the marine ecology. And then when he brought them out, they were, they were tasked to do work on the trip. So they would be in teams to measure water quality. There were parameter teams where one team would do pH, another team would do nutrients, turbidity. And we would uh, pull the trawl net in three different places in the river and the bay to get a diverse sampling. And every time we pulled the net, which was about a 15 minute tow, uh, the students would get a sample of water and they would go through their, their tests. And they had um, data sheets that they had to record on. And they actually got graded for their work on the trip. And it was, so it was a serious business, but it was also great fun because we, you never know what you would catch. And we would catch all kind of, of interesting creatures. And then we would spend the time uh, teaching about each species to the students as, as we pull them out of the net. Got it. So when's this upcoming school year trip happening? Well, we're, we're having some difficulty now uh, continuing the program. The COVID uh, uh, issues, we haven't been doing it for the last two seasons. And the boat was also changed the ownership. So the new owner hasn't really, uh, isn't on board yet with the program. So it's, it's kind of in jeopardy, but that's a status. Got it. Okay. Well, hopefully it does come back for the upcoming school year. That'd be great. I was just going to follow up with that with one quick question. Are there any students that come to mind, you know, over the years that have, you know, gone on and take this, you know, education opportunity and, you know, has either seen someone spawn their interest in, you know, marine education or getting into the field? Um, not at the seventh grade level. That's, that's a little too difficult to track. <laughs> However, we do uh, field work in partnership with some of the teachers in Stockton. And okay. there's, there's, there's really a gr great legacy of Stockton graduates uh, coming uh, into the watershed for, for career positions in GIS. And as a matter of fact, like Rick Dovey, who's the president of the ACUA, is a Stockton graduate. Got it. Great. All right. Well, Great first half, Fred. We got plenty of more to go on the other side. This is the Something in the Air podcast. 
right, and we are back with the Something in the Air podcast brought to you by the Press of Atlantic City in conjunction with the fine folks over at Stockton University. We are with Watershed Fred. He is the administrator of the uh, Great Egg Harbor Watershed, and we have been talking about everything watershed related. And we're going to shift gears a little bit into the second half because uh, Fred does wear a few different hats, and we'll get into that. But uh, I want to talk to you about um, one report that came out by the Army Corps of Engineers, the long, uh, we'll say, studied Back Bay project uh, is finished, and the Army Corps, in conjunction with the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, did come out with its initial plan. And with those, it did include some things that would impact uh, the watershed area, um, floodgates, there's proposed three floodgates to be built, including one through the Absecon Inlet, another one between Longport and Ocean City, and then also a back bay barrier that would help to pool off the back bays, including one that runs essentially off of Route 30 from Absecon tied to the bulkhead um, on the other side. Um, Fred, I know you have some thoughts on this. I uh, want to turn it over to you and you know, see what impact that would have on the watershed, both positive and negative, and you know your opinion of it in general. Okay, it's it's. I've been studying this for probably two or three years because the Army Corps has been working on it, and the uh, barrier that will go across the Great Harbor Inlet is kind of at the very bottom of the watershed. So the impacts would be in the coastal area. The potential impacts would be in the coastal area. And I think one of the, the biggest things uh, is if the gates get closed, then the water's going to uh, back up that's flowing downstream from, you know, up in the watershed. And that could maybe uh, cause some issues uh, with the ecology because it's not natural for that to occur. So it's hard to know how long that will be or you know, just what's involved. But in a general sense, I think that the Army Corps has selected only structural measures um, and there were non-structural measures or nature-based measures, which they proposed and talked about, but they're not picking to do those. And I think those are more beneficial measures to deal with sea level rise, uh, whereas the storm surge barrier can't stop sea level rise. It can only, you know, deter a storm surge. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, we are having sea level rise. We've, our seas have risen uh, just around a foot uh, since the early 1900s to now. Um, there's an 83% likelihood that by the time we get towards 2050, we have another 11 or so inches of sea level rise. Um, you know, when it comes to the, the natural features that, that you're talking about here, you know, what would you like to see done to, you know, mitigate against the impacts of the everyday sea level rise, as opposed to just the bigger storms that come in and do push a lot of surge, you know, in water onto the shore and the mainland? Well, one of the proposals that uh, I think I like and it makes sense is the channels always need to be dredged and that material is basically eroding off the marshes. So to develop methods to take that and put it 
back on the marshes to build them back up uh, would keep the marshes in play for absorbing and mitigating tidal uh, water that comes in and out. Because if sea level rises and the marshes become submerged, they're going to die and it'll just become, you know, like water areas that won't provide much uh, ecological benefit or uh, protection. So you're saying almost like beach replenishment just with marshes. Yeah, it's a, it's a little more tricky because you don't want to like kill the marsh by piling a bunch of dread spoils on it. Mm. Uh, but there's some other creative ideas that, that they're looking at in Barnegat Bay. And one of those that I think is pretty cool is to take a, uh, air, a pool in the bay that's not doing much and create a new island with the dread spoils so that that would be kind of a bump in the speed bump in the road of waves coming in and out and, and surges coming in and out. And it would also then add habitat for birds, for example. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And I, I was actually in Holgate not too long ago and I believe they were at least the people I was speaking with, they were mentioning something like that to, you know, mitigate against from the sea level rise here. Um, you know, just growing up in Brigantine and, you know, still being very active with the waterways, of course, more so than ever, you know, how do you see, um, tidal flooding and the increases in tidal flooding? Because like on one hand, like, yeah, sea levels have risen, but on the other hand, like the way I see it, like, I mean, growing up in Brigantine compared to how it is now, it, I mean, it must be night and day with how much has been built up with impervious services, sidewalks, roads, you know, buildings, et cetera. That's kind of like, give me like a overhead view of how you've seen this develop over your lifetime. When, when I tell people I grew up in Brigantine, I, I tell them it was BC, which is before <laughs> casinos. <laughs> So now I don't, I don't really even like to go back there because it just isn't the place where I grew up with, you know, wild ends of the island and vacant lots and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the, like, looking at the, the area in general, like the, the state is trying to do that uh, coastal area with Atlantic City Brigantine, um, Ventnor Margate, Longport, and what is it? Um, I believe it's uh, uh, Northfield and Pleasantville. It's the Resilient NJ program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so those areas are so built up, there's really no place for, there's no room for the marsh to migrate to higher land as sea level rises. But if you look at the Great Egg Harbor watershed west of the Garden State Parkway, <clears throat> there's a vast area of the Tuckahoe Wildlife Management Area. And that was identified by the Nature Conservancy as one of the most resilient areas on the East Coast because there's lots of room there for the marsh to migrate inland as sea level rises. Got Got All right. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about one of our favorite things to do, and that is Cocoa Ross, the Community collaborative, no, the collaborative community rain, hail, and snow network. I, I can never figure it out, but Coco yeah, Ross essentially. Did I get it right, Fred? Was I close? Yeah, yeah. I think I was. I was in the ballpark there. It's um, it's a volunteer way to measure rain, snowfall, even hail, and report it to a national database 
which is then used by many different players. It's used by myself. Oftentimes, if you're seeing my reports of who had the most snow, who had the most rain, it comes from Coco Ross, and it's all done by you. And I've been very happy to say that over my time here working with Dave Robinson, somebody that if you're listening to the podcast, you know very well, Fred knows as well, um, you know, has been instrumental on. Dave Robinson is the coordinator for the state, and we've been able to increase the number of people in Atlantic, Cape May, Cumberland, Ocean County over the past couple of years. But Fred is actually the county coordinator for Atlantic County. So, Fred, I'm just going to turn it over to you and talk about the how Coco Ross is actually influencing what you're doing with the watershed. Well, the, the rain is our like biggest source of fresh water. And I'm proud that I, I was the first Coco Ross observer <laughs> yes, you were. in Atlantic County. This is my website where I submit my data. Just wanted to, to show that. Uh, a link to watershed maps. So even the Kokoraz program recognizes the importance of watersheds and watershed data in uh, thinking about and managing rainfall. So this is a map from Kokoraz that shows the upper part of the Great Harbor watershed. And one of the issues we have, Joe, in our, our watershed is that we're in the coastal plain so everything's very flat. So it's difficult to see where the high points are, the edges of the watershed. But the, this boundary for the upper, any rain that falls inside that pretty much stays in there and it either goes into the ground or it flows downstream to the center of the watershed. And because the, the rainwater is our source of drinking water, and because if it doesn't go into the ground and get filtered where we can get back and it runs off, it crosses over the ground, washes pollution into the surface water, you know, lakes and streams, and causes water quality problems. So how we manage the land uh, and stormwater are big parts of watershed management. Awesome. And, you know, Fred, I'll just say, if you go to CocoRoss.org, C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S.org, before we finish uh, here, the one thing we're doing is we are talking to people. My get, you know, when we have our guests on, can you split up North, Central, and South Jersey for us? And Fred, I didn't look at it yet, but you already told me you went North and South. So in my book, I'm already a little hesitant, but I'm going to open this up now and let's take a look at what you got. Okay. Okay. So this, okay. Okay. This is, this is, I'm okay. Listen, like gun to my head, you're saying, you know, North and South, like I'm okay with this. Um, so you are going, this is coming from somewhere. I'm guessing this looks like you didn't draw us yourself. So you have essentially ocean of Burlington on South is South and everywhere to the, to the North of there is North. So just kind of 15 seconds, tell us, where'd you get this map from? And, you know, uh, just a little more on that uh, map. Well, I'm, I'm a GIS guy. So, and I, I think that the county government, the county divisions are a big um, factor nationally because they talk about COVID based on counties. So I took the county layers uh, from the state of New Jersey and figured that you know, like Burlington and Ocean counties kind of reach way south. <clears throat> and so I figured that on the county, looking at it by county, 
divisions, this is how I would do it. And I put in the Pinelands and the Highlands because the Pinelands is in South Jersey. Mm -hmm. And so those, that was, that's it. That's what I came up with. Yeah. Fred, let's put it this way. You were way better than Nick Underwood last time. I still can't, that scarred me for life. (laughs) I can't get over that. But the map, the quality of the map, A plus right there, Fred. So I, I appreciate that. I would say maybe Tom's River up the brick is is north if we're going to go with this. But overall, you know, I, listen, it's your map, and I appreciate you uh, showing us. Well, we could do it at the municipal level, which then maybe we could fit in a central New Jersey if we do right. it that way. Maybe next time we have you on, Fred. Well, we'll have you do that. Uh, all right. Well, Fred Akers, everyone. Fred, thanks so much for taking the time out to chat with us here um, I appreciate it. And Fred, again, you know, Fred is one of those guys I think flies under the radar a little bit, but when it comes to his, his work and what's happening in South Jersey, uh, is tremendous. And I'm happy to have him on here today. This is the something in the air podcast. We'll be back with you the first Wednesday of October, recapping local summer, September with New Jersey state climatologist and Coco Ross coordinator for the state. Dr. Dave Robinson. Until then, everybody, take care, stay safe, and we'll chat with you soon.